Welcome to season two of Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Today I have with, um, with me my two of my very favorite people, uh, Dr. Laura Eight and Robin Johnston. We work together at the University of Dallas and they are an absolute delight. I had so much fun working with them and they know a lot about literature, teaching literature uh, for all levels, uh, K through 12, through college, really, Laura. And um, this is gonna be a real treat. Uh, the conversation might be pretty long, so we may end up breaking it into two episodes, which is fine because it's a really rich topic. But uh, without further ado, I'm going to ask Laura, Dr. Eight, to introduce herself first, give a little bit of background, and then Robin. So, yes, thank you. Thank you, Adrian, for having me again. Um, so I'm originally from Germany, grew up in Germany, went um, to, to school and to college there as well, and came over to the U.S. to get my degree in comparative literature. I got an MA and a PhD in comparative literature from the University of Texas at Austin, where I met my husband, and then I got stuck in Texas that way. And uh, we've been teaching at the University of Dallas for about 15 years now, and I teach some German and Spanish classes, but also a lot of humanities classes, in particular on literature, on 19th and 20th century literature, but also on children's literature. Really one of my favorite classes is on teaching classical children's literature, which I teach for the classical ed program here at UD. Okay, Robin? Well, thanks, Adrian, for having us today. Um, I'm Robin Johnston. I'm a mom of to five, and I fostered 10 more, and I was a school teacher uh, here in Dallas, in South Dallas, for 23 years. I taught everything from fourth grade up to 12th, uh, sort of specialized in middle school, and now I work at the University of Dallas in the classical curriculum department, and I'm working on my master's degree in classical education. And I have loved literature since I was very, very little uh, and love sharing and talking about it. Great. This is awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm going to dive into our first question. I have a lot of questions, but and they're, they're, they're pretty deep. But my first question is about how to become a good reader. I think this is a big problem that we have seen in the schools we've worked with, that it's an epidemic. Um, the idea of what is a good reader um, is, is lacking in the teaching children how to read well is lacking. So I, I really like the experiment in criticism by C.S. Lewis, um, teaching us how to be a good reader, what's a good reader, what's, what's a bad reader. And I also like uh, Mortimer Adler's How to Read. They are very different, but I, I think they both have value to them. Um, I'd like to discuss how children literature should be approached and how we must not dissect it. Um, also, Laura, I would like for you to discuss the dangers of teaching plot to children. So that's kind of another question within that question, but it's part of the, the conversation. So who, who would like to start? Laura. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think it might be helpful to first clarify a little bit about what we mean by what is a good reader. And I think um, C.S. Lewis is a good starting point here. Uh, he defines a good reader as someone who 
loves reading, someone who rereads frequently, someone who looks for times to read, someone who is really deeply disturbed when they don't find the time to read, someone who has a, really an urge to read, um, also someone who remembers what they read and likes to talk about it, uh, someone who makes reading part of who they are, someone for whom the characters in the book become, become their best friends. Um, he says, reading is a main ingredient in our well-being. So this is really a person who almost gets sick when they can't read. It is something so, so deeply important to, um, to everything that they are about. So it is not necessarily connected to learning or to being a literature professor. <laughs> In fact, um, once reading becomes work, he says you will no longer have that perfect reading response. So um, that I think uh, relates to the issue that you brought up about not dissecting literature. That's uh, I think a really important part of it. Robin, how what, how would you what would you say is a good reader or what is good reading? Well, I, I think that our our concept of reading flows naturally out of our view of the child. Um, is the child a human person, or are they an empty vessel that needs to be filled up with information? Um, if they're human people, then uh, we want to introduce them to these great stories that will help them discover who they are and what their world is about. But if they just need to be filled up with information, then we can dissect all these stories for them and tell them where the climax is and what the plot line is and which was the main character and all those kinds of things, rather than letting them discover for themselves the beauty in the book. Um, and if we do that, of course, the child gets pretty bored. Like you said, Laura, it becomes work. And if reading becomes a chore, which I think it is in a lot of classrooms today, then of course they don't want to do it. Nobody wants to do chores. But if reading is a joy and a delight and an escape and a place to find beauty and wonder, then, then you become a good reader because you're drawn to it. Um, right, and there's there's one beautiful part in, in Lewis' book again where he talks about a family who just um, uses for them reading as kind of a status symbol. They uh, the, the parents are only only read what they think they should be reading so that they can discuss it with other people and make themselves important. And then he says, meanwhile, the only real reading that's going on is probably the boy undercover is reading Treasure Island just because he loves reading Treasure Island. <laughs> With a flashlight in the middle of the night, yes? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's such a, <laughs> such a beautiful image. Um, I like that too, though, because it also points to how reading, I mean, at least in that family, reading is part of the family experience. I think maybe this, this um, might lead us too far out of where we're going here, but I think a big problem is that reading doesn't happen in a lot of homes sufficiently. Mm -hmm or even at all, that children come home and play video games instead of reading, that parents don't, reach, don't, don't read to their children, that they watch TV instead. Um, so I, I think that's another uh, big part of why reading is a problem, why reading, why reading is difficult. They're not, the children are often not seeing it modeled in the home. Exactly. They don't see mom and dad curl up with a good book, so why should they? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Right. And this actually ties back to the idea of leisure, the Aristotelian yes. view of leisure, and that we ought to be pursuing the good things, the beautiful mm -hmm. things, when we have our leisure time. And this this applies to that. And I think it's a really important aspect. I'm really glad you brought that up because a lot of parents are pursuing classical education and they don't really understand necessarily what it is. And so, 
you know, some of the, some parents are attracted to the idea that classical education will prepare your students for college. They'll test higher on the scores, you know, for the ACT, maybe get scholarships and they're learning Latin. And so these kind of um, ideas of motivation for sending their kids to a classical school don't necessarily line up with really what a classical education is the pursuit of the true, yes. the good, and the beautiful, and the life of leisure ought to be also pursuing the good, the true, and the beautiful. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think that's really great. And I do want to talk more about reading at home. Um, what other thoughts do you guys have about this? I know we talked a lot about it. We created book lists for parents to read mm -hmm. to their children at home. Tell, tell, tell our listeners, I mean, think about the listeners that are new to classical education, um, parents, uh, teachers that are new, and the importance of establishing the habit of reading at home as a family. Well, I, I think that humans are naturally drawn to story. We've been telling stories long before we had written language. Um, you know, the, the ancient bards would memorize epic stories to tell. Christ himself taught with stories. He used parables, uh, which weren't always terribly clear to his disciples, uh, but a good story can really touch the human heart and and move the human mind in a way that nothing else can. And most of those good stories are found in books mm -hmm. and not in television programs that took a week and a half to produce. Um, so I, I think G.K. Chesterton uh, talked about how the reason people are drawn to books is because books are true, even if they never really happened. Oh, the stories nice. are true with a capital T, true, mm -hmm. even if they never really happened. And I, I think that that truth that's inherent in books is part of why we want our children to be good readers, so that they're drawn to truth mm -hmm. and goodness and beauty. Mm -hmm. Laura, do you have anything to add? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, I, I would like to get your thoughts on Adler's book. I know, Laura, you have some thoughts about it. Um, comparing it to Experiment and Criticism by Lewis, comparing Adler's How to Read. Tell, tell our listeners your thoughts about the two and how they're different. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I think they're really very wildly different. Um, Adler's book is much broader in scope because it talks about a lot of different kinds of reading, mm -hmm. um, right? Not just literature. He has one short chapter on imaginative literature, which I think is is fairly closely in line with what Lewis is saying, but overall, it's it's much broader in scope, and I think it is a helpful book for probably high school teachers. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it is all that useful for for the lower grades, and even for high school, I would say still say um, maybe use with care because it is so much focused on analyzing and dissecting books mm -hmm. and ideas um, that I think could be could lead to what, what uh, C.S. Lewis is describing as, as not really the right kind of reading, not fostering a love of reading. Um, in his chapter on imaginative literature, though, he, um, I think he's very closely connected to Lewis's idea, and he says, uh, beauty is harder to analyze than truth, and I really love that quote. Um, really, you could have a whole podcast episode <laughs> discussing just that. Beauty is harder to analyze than truth. I think that is that is so true, and I think that's why very often in classical schools or maybe even families too. Um, beauty seems to take a little bit the back seat very often. Um, 
but he also emphasizes that you can't really read a novel or a poem the same way that you would um, a philosophical book, for example. And um, that the main idea, that the main point of a novel is to really act on us, to move us deeply, to help us um, understand the characters, that the human side of it, to understand human relationships. Um, so I think that's that's a really important chapter here, um, mm -hmm. and really a very different chapter from the rest of the book. And and I, I do like a lot that he acknowledges how different literature is from other types of um, writing, from other reading that children would do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Robin, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, no, just the only thought that I really had was that uh, Lewis talks about letting um, letting a book enlarge you. Mm -hmm. And, and Mortimer talks more about understanding what you're reading. So there, mm -hmm. that's a slightly different point of view from the two men, mm -hmm. but both valuable in their own way. I agree. I agree. I remember when we were piloting sixth grade and some of the teachers were mentioning, and especially this is so new to teachers that have never taught this way. And they were mentioning that the students were struggling with the vocabulary and getting so stuck on feeling like they needed to know all these vocabulary words before they could actually tackle reading the short story. And uh, Robin and I sent them a short, very short, like one and a half page little article on how to read uh, by Mortimer Adler. I can put a link to it in the show notes. And um, we asked the teachers, hey, read this with your students because the essence of it was just read it. Don't worry about trying to understand it. Don't worry about dissecting it in a sense, you know, just read mm -hmm. it from front to front to back and allow it to just do its work in you, which I think in that sense, that particular little essay was similar in, in the same idea, I think, as mm -hmm. Lewis, is just read it. And you, when you're done, you'll realize, oh, I actually understood more of that than I thought I could, even though I didn't understand or know half of the vocabulary words in it. And that's that, there's a letting go there that, that I think is important for teachers uh, to understand that even if a, a book, or a story, an essay, or what have you is difficult and has a lot of words in it that perhaps your students have never been exposed to, just go ahead and read it. And you can come back to it and reread it and have conversations about, mm -hmm. about it. And um, the feedback we got from the teachers who did that said, oh, the essay really helped the students. They had their students read it. Do you remember that, Robin? Yes, and I, I think students are often, also often afraid that they're going to be graded. Yes. On thing, and so that makes them immediately anxious and nervous. So you have to help them set that aside as well. That's a great point. Great point. All right. I'd like to go into discussing education through literature to the heart and the mind of the students. Like we've already kind of been touching on that, but I would like to get into how uh, virtues are involved. Um, what the heart of a classical education is allowing the virtue of love and care to naturally cultivate in the soul of a child. Um, and how, how do we um, perhaps help teachers who feel like they need to give direct teaching in the virtue that the story was about versus allowing the virtues to naturally unfold through the stories we're reading? What's the fine balance to that? Can you can you speak into that? <laughs> well, it, it kind of feeds back to the original topic that we were talking about where if you cut it up for the child and, and and tell them this is the important thing and these are the main characters then then it becomes a chore and you've already done some of the work for them 
rather than letting them discover uh, as they read and, and letting them live alongside those characters and experience those events in a safe way, uh, not in real life, but in their fictional life. Um, and that's one of the wonderful things that reading does for us, for adults and children alike, is that moves us out of our self-absorption self and into connection with ideas and, and people, even if they're fictional people, and helps us to develop empathy for them and for their situations. It helps us to see through their eyes and to ponder a new point of view. Um, and if you, if you hand a child a book and say, here, I want you to read this because it's about honesty, well, you've, you've just stolen the ending from them. Let them read it and let them ponder it and maybe never even ask them a question about honesty necessarily. Uh, let them, let that seed be planted by the literature itself and grow in their, in their soul. It helps them to develop that moral imagination. Mm -hmm. um, right. Um, maybe we can also connect that to Adrian. Earlier you were asking, asking about a story chart or plot. Um, I think that ties in here a little bit as well. Because again, it's the idea that Robin just um, expressed so well that if you give children a worksheet to fill out or a particular task to do with a text, they approach it in a very different way than if they are just approaching it from the idea of this is a great story, we want to explore these characters, we want to explore the story. And um, really, uh, um, these plot charts are kind of one of my pet peeves, um, especially for the idea that they are classical because they're really just like some other ideas in the classical education world, they're really not that old. They are, um, this idea of the plot chart was developed in the 19th century um, by someone in Germany. Um, and then somehow made its way across the ocean. And I think the progressive education movement just pounced on it because it makes literature very, um, very measurable, right? You can sort of neatly yeah, yeah. put it into different measurable components. Um, it makes it scientific looking. You have a chart, you can put things into it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a one size fits all approach, which I think really contradicts the idea of literature, the idea, I mean, good, good literary work is one that's not just like everything else. It's mm -hmm. it comes in all forms and shapes and sizes and readers approach it very differently too. So um, the idea of, for example, discussing where the climax is, I think is wonderful because that, if that is a discussion, a larger discussion that the class has, because they, every reader might have a different idea or um, different ideas of what the main emphasis is. Mm -hmm. But if you just have them fill out a chart and a, a worksheet and a, a chart for the, the plot structure, and you have the expectation that there's just one right answer, then it loses all the, the, the beauty of, of discussing the, the work. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one other problem with it is that it focuses so much on plot that maybe we lose track of the idea of characters, uh, literature being the study of humanity, the study of human relationships, um, gets sometimes gets lost in focusing so much on plot development. So I think this would be one other reason why these should maybe not take the center stage in a literary classroom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, that's really good. Well, I, one thing, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Robin. One thing I found interesting in, in uh, looking around, I looked at the National Children's Book and Literacy Alliance website, which is a very progressive modern website. But even they talk about how some of the most important reasons for reading 
are to develop that empathy and that internal moral compass. They don't mm -hmm. use the word moral imagination mm -hmm. and to lift us out of self, self absorption by discussing characters. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, reading will help you develop your vocabulary and it will help you improve your language skills. But more than that, it'll make you a better human person. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And that's, well, that's what we're really aiming for. Yes. Right. And this takes me back to thinking, I know, I know some parents and teachers are probably thinking, well, then uh, how am I supposed to teach then? Like, <laughs> are we just supposed to read the book and enjoy the book in class? Like, and then how do I get grades? How and do doesn't I... that sound wonderful, though, to just read the book and enjoy <laughs> the book in class? And then how do, I make, how do I make sure that if I'm a charter school, how do I make sure that I'm actually meeting the state requirements? And, and, and how do I do this? I know that's one huge question that people are asking right now. And we're going to address that with some some practical ways that we think are classical ways of teaching books that align with this philosophy of reading. Um, I, I thought of a story. I was uh, training at one of one of the schools, and um, I read an Aesop's fable out loud to the teachers, and I said, "I'm not going to tell you what the moral of it is." And this is one really. I think this is a tiny little thing that a teacher can do that makes a big impact. Um, I didn't tell them the moral and I asked them what they thought the moral was. And I had so many different answers yes. and each one of them had different virtues and it, they were all relevant. Like every answer that I got was, oh, well, that's a perspective that I hadn't thought of. And it's not the one that's written in the book at the bottom of the page. <laughs> right. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at is that when you allow yes. them to make their own connections to there's, there's often, and I know, uh, Robin, you and I love the Madeline Lingle book, Walking on Water. She kind of talks about this, that even the author doesn't always know the completeness mm -hmm. of the message that's being written in the story they're writing yes. because it's uh -huh. so much bigger. And the Holy Spirit is so tied to the message that, even the author doesn't always know how much of an impact that story is going to have on the soul of a, of a, lear of a learner, of a reader. Right. And I think that if we can, like Robin said, go back to what it is to be a child, to be a human being, to be a full person created in the image of God. And what does that mean with how we teach? Like, are we limiting the work of the Holy Spirit allowing them to hear a message that perhaps we, the teacher, didn't see or don't really think is important. But yet to the child, if they see something and then they're taking delight in it in a different way, we don't want to stifle that because that's what kills the love of learning, right? <laughs> Right, and that happens so often. I've actually sometimes um, in my carpool, I've, I overhear the kids talking, and there have been several times where the kids say that they hate a particular book, like Anne of Green Gables, and then I turn around and ask, why do you hate this book? And they say, because, oh, because of the annotations. I hate annotating. So they hate the assignment that goes with the book, but it transfers over to how they feel about the book. And I think right. that's a really important message for teachers to hear, is, is yes. the assignment that I'm giving is that going to deepen the child's love of the book, the, ch the child's engagement with the book, not just intellectual, but really the whole person, the engagement of the whole person with the book, not just the intellectual engagement. Mm -hmm. I, okay. I, I recall having a teacher beat a book to death when I was in high school, and it was Romeo and Juliet. And to this day, I can't stand that play. 
<sighs> because she we did it for a full semester. Oh, and, and we we argued about every little thing in the book and we had worksheet after worksheet and assignment after assignment and I, it killed it for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's like the Billy Collins poem, Introduction to Poetry. Yes. <laughs> tied it to the chair yeah. and beat it to death with a hose, yes. Right, <laughs> tied it to the chair. We take a poem, we tie it to the chair and we beat it to death with a hose. Great. Until it tells us what it means. Yes. 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 Great poem, I love that. But it's the same for literature, poetry and literature. It is. Yeah. Poetry, yeah. yes. Absolutely. I love that. Well, this takes us to a crisis moment for teachers, I'm sure. <laughs> So if 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 we if if we don't want to kill the book to death, and I don't think you know doing a plot outline every now and then is a terrible idea. It's no. it is a it is a state standard. I think starting in third <laughs> or fourth grade, if you're in a if you're in a public. No, and school. I think it can be it can, it can definitely be helpful if it has if a story has a complex plot structure. Um, I think the main idea though would be to do it as a conversation, not as a worksheet, as part of a conversation that you have with the whole class, maybe. The teacher can put it on the board while the students talk, and perhaps the teacher doesn't even need to require that they all copy it down. Mm-hmm. Maybe they sometimes want might want to, but but still, I think the the main point here would be make it a conversation. Don't make it an individual assignment. Sure, I love that. I know, Laura, you also had once showed me <laughs> sort of a very different type of plot structure for Pinocchio. <laughs> yes, I think that would be impossible to describe <laughs> without seeing it. Oh, sure. Sorry, but it was, I think it was, we'll need to wait for when I think, do. Yeah, I think your argument there, though, was that, you know, there are many different mini plots in possible. Uh, right. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, the main idea would be to, to track aspects of, of character development. But yeah, again, I think this would be kind of hard to describe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, maybe someday you can come out with a little manual on it because I know Pinocchio yeah. is a book that you absolutely yes. love. In fact, we're going to be getting into uh, yeah, we'll be getting into t- uh, books about books to read at certain ages, and I'm anxious for you to share with our listeners what what you think about Pinocchio, and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit here. So, the next question that this I think is going to help answer a lot of um, of how to teach literature has to do with narration. So. Um, I want us to discuss how how narration is part of the act of reading, um, and it, and according to the tradition within monastic schools, when I did research on the tradition of Catholic education, I noticed that reading and narrating and thinking all three are an act that operates together, and so when you say reading, narrating is part of that, thinking is part of that. They're not like separate segmented subjects or lessons or ways of teaching but narrating is a natural part of reading um, it's not an isolated activity um, so I'd like us to spend some time talking about narration and how it transforms the heart and mind so Robin I'm going to start with you with tell our listeners what narration is and how it's different than a summary okay <laughs> all right um Narration is, uh, is something that requires the student to use all of the different powers of their mind. Um, in a lot of classrooms today, the student is required to listen or even just hear. Hearing is passive, listening is a little more active, but narration requires much more than that. You have to uh, pay attention to what's being uh, spoken. You have to think about it and process it in your head. 
And then when you narrate, you have to choose what you're going to say and in what sequence, what words you're going to use from the author and what words of your own you're going to use, what should come before and what should come after. And then you have to actually deliver that, usually spoken, but sometimes in writing. Um, you must tell things back in a, in a proper order and in a reasonable way. And that helps the child to use so much more of their brain than just hearing a story or even just listening well. Um, it forms all kinds of memory pathways. It helps their uh, visual imagination to develop as they're listening to a story. If they visualize it in their head, then it's much easier to remember. And by the way, visual imagination, that's a whole nother podcast mm -hmm. for you right there. Mm -hmm. The difference between a narration and a summary is that a summary aims to take a long story and condense it down to the shortest possible form. Um, so for example, if I was telling the story of Little Red Riding Hood, um, a girl is, is uh, tempted by a wolf on her way to take care of her grandmother and then has to fight the wolf at her grandmother's house after she discovers that he's in disguise. Mm -hmm. There, I've summarized the story. But I didn't narrate it. I didn't tell you the story. I didn't use any of the beautiful original language from the fairy tale. I didn't give you any real specific events. And I certainly didn't give you any beautiful details, did I? Right. Oh, what big mm -hmm. eyes you have, grandmother. That, that wasn't in that summary. So a summary is, is not the same as a narration. And narrations are what children do naturally. I yes. have a three-year-old grandson, mm -hmm. and he, he narrates everything to me. Everything he did, he's blah, 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 blah. he's just telling me all about it because that's how memory is formed. Mm -hmm. And without memory, we don't have identity. So, mm -hmm. summary requires synthesis, it requires prior comprehension and understanding, whereas the process of narration allows the child to assimilate the ideas. Yes, the process of narration is actually good for the child in, yes. in, a, in a lot of ways. I, I find as an adult, that if I want to remember something that I've read, mm -hmm. I have to tell it to someone. Mm -hmm. I have right. to tell it to my husband. I have to tell it to my son. I have, I have to share it with someone. And then it sticks better because it, it goes through all the processes of my thoughts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I've, I worked at several schools and uh, started having the teachers do narration. And I went in to observe a few months after they had started and they were doing a great job. And afterwards, I interviewed a few of the children and, and this one little boy. Well, the teacher said to me that he's paying so much more attention than he used to in class. He used to just, you know, be one of those students who constantly fell out of his chair, dropped his pencil, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and he was, she said he was paying attention so much better. And so I asked him, you know, what do you think about narration? And he goes, well, it's really hard and I'm glad I'm doing it. And he said, it's like a mind gym. <laughs> like, oh, wonderful. Yeah. He said, so my mind is tired after school. And I thought, good. That's what your spirit, the, the students should be tired at the end of the school day, not the teacher. Not the, the teacher. The, the <laughs> students should be the one who did the, the heavy lifting in the mind, not the student, not the teacher. Because so. the one doing the work is the one doing the learning. That's right. That's exactly. right. And so, and then I know uh, Charlotte Mason recommends uh, narrating starting around the age of six. Uh, Quintilian's pretty much says the same thing. And um, then written narrations can start around the age of nine or 10. 
and uh, even as early as eight. But students shouldn't be uh, doing written narrations at the expense of no longer doing oral. Right. They should always be doing oral narrating because mm -hmm. there's something about the process of verbally telling it that helps to lock it in so that when you do a written narration, it's it's there for recall. And um, so I, I often will encourage teachers to um, even do written narrations as pop quizzes if they need a grade. <laughs> um, you know, the next day they could start the class with, you know, yesterday we read the story, we did an oral narration. Now I'd like you to write the narration of, of what we talked about yesterday and then turn it in and that's gonna be a quiz grade. Um, that's a really great way to get a grade, um, but we also encourage do not grade them on spelling or punctuation or grammar. You are grading them on the, the narration. Um, and do uh, not grade every narration. Correct. And maybe yeah. also um, don't have quite the same expectation of a written narrations as of written narrations as you would of oral narrations, because a lot of children are just, especially at the younger ages, they're just going to be much slower and um, not won't say as much as they would orally. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. Okay. Um, so I'd like to discuss comprehension questions, <laughs> novel study guides versus evaluating good readers. Um, there's a big difference and it should be different for a classical educator because our outcomes are different. Um, our goal is to help students learn to love and care, not necessarily to test well, which of course we want, but that's not the number one goal. So in a progressive school model, we're evaluating general comprehension, the ability to analyze and make children become efficient readers, learning to skim a text by teaching reading strategies, which really is um, to prepare kids for a test. So let's discuss the reading strategy approach, comprehension quizzes, and how ought a classical teacher approach reading strategies, how to assess them in a way that educates the heart and mind of a student. It's a big question. Oh, yeah. How much time do you have? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I think one of the first things that a classical teacher can do in a homeschool or a classroom setting is learn to ask better questions, uh, especially regarding literature. Um, most worksheets and most novel study guides are at least halfway, if not all the way full of what I consider really rotten questions. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're generally very analytical questions. There's only one right answer to them. And they don't really uh, encourage any additional thought or reflection on the text. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some novel study guides out there that will have, you know, more open-ended synthetic kind of questions. But by and large, it's just merely comprehension questions. And they're very dull and dry. Um, it, you know, again, going back to Little Red Riding Hood, what color was her cape? What was in her basket? Uh, how did the wolf disguise himself? What did Red Robin Hood or uh, Little Red Riding Hood say when she arrived? That kind of thing. It's just boring. Mm -hmm. um, whereas much more interesting questions would would be things like, why do you think the wolf disguised himself as the grandmother rather than just eating her up in the woods? Mm -hmm. I always wondered that as a child. Why didn't he just eat her? He didn't have to go through this whole. So much more interesting question for the child. Um, why do you think? Uh, the wolf, the uh, the huntsman came to help. Those kinds of things, more open-ended questions, where there's more than one right answer to them, uh, and it's, it's much more interesting to discuss, no matter how old the child is. Um, well, and if you've been narrating before, you don't even really need all these 
basic comprehension questions oh. because they've already all been covered in the narration. That is, I think, one of the other points of the narration that you can yes. do that as a first step. And then you can launch into other questions. You can launch into larger conversations, into the why and how and evaluative questions. But first you ensure that students assimilate the story and that they mm -hmm. have comprehended it. The story and narration also shows you where they have not understood maybe connections between events or cause and effect and then that leads to more exploration and more um, more questions and it, it just develops naturally into a conversation about questions like the ones that Robin just brought up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Robin did you want to share I know you were uh, wanting to share a little bit I think about reading strategies and <laughs> you had some thoughts about that. Uh Reading strategies is such a broad term. And a lot of times when teachers are going to teacher college uh, education courses, they're, they're taught certain strategies that they can use to help students who are struggling with reading. I think that like anything else, uh, reading is something that you learn by doing. Mm -hmm. So if you wanna get better at reading, you read more. And the first way that that happens is for the parent to read aloud to the child. Um, and I know Laura can speak more to this, preferably with beautiful, beautiful books, both in the words and in the pictures. And then read aloud with the child with your with your finger following the line, and then allow the child to read the book to you. Uh, but don't stop reading aloud to them. Don't ever stop. <laughs> uh, but by and large, the best way to become a better reader is to read more and to talk about the reading that you're doing more with other people. Um, and to be sure that you choose books that have valuable characters, interesting stories, beautiful images, you know, exciting adventures and all that sort of thing. A lot of reading strategies teach skills that are useful to have as an adult, like skimming, you mentioned earlier, skimming, learning how to skim is, is a good skill. But mm -hmm. I don't want my child to skim through Anna Green Gables. Right. Exactly. I, I don't mind if they skim through a science article uh, that they want to just check and see if this is something they want to read or not. But I want them to read the words in Anna Green Gables. So right. you have to be careful where you apply the reading okay. strategies that you've been taught to, to give children. Um, and of course, if they have a serious reading difficulty, a dyslexia issue or something like that, a visual problem, you want to get that addressed separately. Um, but I, I really think that the best way to to help children become better readers is to read to them more and read mm -hmm. with them more. Mm -hmm. Right. And they first need to just be good readers. Going back to our very beginning conversation, first, this needs to happen. They need to become good readers who love reading, who are able to engage with the reading heart and mind. And then you can go into dissecting it. You want to give the children the experience first and then dissecting it. And really what you said about reading at home is so important, just reading with your children and keep reading with your children. Both of my sons were very late readers. I was quite surprised how that could even be possible that I have children who don't <laughs> like reading, who don't read. It was quite stunning, but I just kept reading to them and now they just devour books. They come home and the first thing they do is they drop everything and sit down on the couch and start reading mm -hmm. because they love it now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One one additional strategy that I would recommend is that you limit their screen time. That is a reading strategy mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Um, our, our children were limited to a half an hour a day on, on any screen of any kind. And if your brother was playing a video game and you stood next to him and watched him the whole half hour, well, that was your half hour too. Wow. 
it burned them both up. And so the rest of the time we were either reading or we were listening to audiobooks or we were playing games together. Um, and they quickly learned that if they wanted to be left alone, all they had to do was pick up a book or, or, <laughs> yes. or an audiobook. And their siblings would leave them alone for a little while. So I, we, well, or mom too, right? Because mom too, I, yes. Especially because <laughs> my children did not start out as um, as readers. When I saw them reading, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to ask him to do the dishes now. He's reading. That, that, <laughs> that's, that's, that's sacred. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I would notice what they were reading and ask them to tell me about it. You know, so oh, I saw you were reading, you know, Treasure Island. Tell me what you tell me what's happening in the book. Mm-hmm. They don't think that that's a mechanical chore. They they're having a conversation right. with mom or dad about about what they're reading. Mm-hmm. They feel loved and noticed, and so that would be my other reading strategy is to to right. And really, really, what you said about reading instead of screen time, I think that is probably Huge. the most crucial me- me- uh, the most crucial me- method and a message because that is what what takes children's time away from reading and Today, it's always yeah. going to win it's always going to win over in terms of entertainment value it's always going to win over reading so that's really the main thing that parents can do and and i would say to some extent the the excessive use of screen time is one of the reasons that children can't visualize things anymore mm-hmm. because they've always had the visualization given to them right they've never had to create it in their own minds you know mm-hmm. what what does the island in in uh and Narnia look like? Mm-hmm. You know, what does it look mm-hmm. like? Well, I only know the island from the movie. Right. Well, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I remember we talked about um, some of the work we were doing with some of the schools that some, we noticed that some teachers were having a lot of students struggling with just reading, narrating Beatrix Potter stories. And we we're like, <laughs> how, how is this possible? How can a six-year-old not know how to tell back what happened in Peter Rabbit? And we realized that a real possible reason was that these children were in front of a screen so much that they didn't have their visual imagination developed well enough to be able to picture a story when it was being read to them. Mm -hmm. And so one of the strategies we came up with in our training was to start teaching children how to narrate by first doing picture study. Yes. Um, would one of you guys talk in, talk a little bit about that and how that works? <laughs> I love picture study. It's one of my uh, one of my favorite things. Picture study is is just when you find a beautiful work of art, um, and it can be from anywhere, and you put it in front of the child and ask them to look at it for a minute or two very closely. Then you take the art away and ask them to tell you about the picture, and ask them questions about it. What did you notice? Um, what did it make you wonder about? What did you see happening in this picture? And then you discuss that. And then after you've had a discussion, you give them back the picture and they look again and they see even more the second time. <laughs> this helps them to begin to develop that attentive attention to detail and that helps to build that visual memory for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you want to be careful to ask beautiful open-ended questions, not not uh, how you know what color was the dress that the lady on the left was wearing or whatever. Right. <laughs> uh, but tell me about the lady that you saw. Oh, you saw a lady. Tell me about the lady. Tell me more about the street. Tell me more about whatever. Uh, and you can do this with little children. You can do this with grownups. I love doing this with grownups because they're always shocked by how much they didn't see. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. 
But the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I love to tell this story. We had some fourth graders who'd been doing picture study and they went to the Dallas Museum of Art on a field trip to see a specific exhibit. And the docent met the class at the door and explained the rules of the museum and you know, have to keep your hands behind your back and that sort of thing. Took them into the first room of the exhibit and all, the, all of these little nine-year-olds just immediately sat down on the ground and started looking at the art in the room silently. And every now and then one of them would whisper to another one. And after a minute or two, one or two of them would get up and move to a different picture and sit down again and just stare at the art. And she was absolutely blown away. The docent was amazed. She says, I've never seen nine-year-olds be this attentive to art before. Mm -hmm. And so and the teacher gathered and, and viewing it so intently. So the teacher gathered the children back into the middle and had them narrate the pictures that they had seen to the docent and tell about the pictures. And I thought this looked like a such and such. And this reminded me of the story we read about thus and such. And she was absolutely almost in tears uh, because they appreciated beautiful art and they were developing that visual imagination with all of this, all these great pictures that will hang in their heads for the rest of their lives as Charlotte Mason tells us, right? Yes, and I, I think this is really important to, to literature, embracing literature because it's an art as well. And absolutely. Yes. And I think it's, I mean, the next step would be to visualize a beautiful scene, a beautiful descriptive scene from a, from a story and to just describe what you're seeing. Um, fables are great for that because they're mm -hmm. such short little works and mm -hmm. they are actually not very descriptive typically. They don't have very many adjectives, but they certainly describe a scene and evoke a scene. Mm -hmm. So having children just tell what they saw in reading when they, when they read the story, for example, the fable of the... Um, the old lion and the fox. It really doesn't describe the scene, but you have to imagine this shaggy old, kind of very old and hungry lion lying there. He's too weak to even get up. Maybe some bones are poking out. Uh, his mane is probably not very beautiful. And then he's in that cave, and it must be pretty dark because there are all these bones lying around, but we, the, the fox can't, or the other animals can't see them. But then in front of the cave, there are all these um, the, the traces from the animals that have come in and not come out, and then the fox is probably sitting at some distance. So you have to visualize all of that in order to really understand this this beautiful mm -hmm. little fable. So th those, I think, those are great um, exercises to just have the children tell you what what did you see. And it's also very, again, very open ended, and anyone can see this in different ways. You can mm -hmm. visualize the fox in slightly different ways, or the the lion, or the scenery. Maybe there's grass around. Maybe it's all rocky. Um, and then you can do the same thing with other beautiful descriptive mm -hmm. um, parts right. and novels. I think the beginning of Heidi is another beautiful uh, part where you have this little girl and this older girl walking up a mountain in the Alps. It's a beautiful scenery. Um, you can talk about what they might be hearing, what they might be feeling. And then this girl is all bundled up. So she's probably really hot and must be uncomfortable. So describing that, what it looks like, what it feels like, what it might sound like, I think that would be a really right. lovely exercise for children. I think you're right. And I remember working with some some of the preschool kindergarten teachers, and we just encouraged them, just have them act it out, act mm -hmm. out the narration or draw it or draw a scene from it. Um, these are really great ways to get students prepared for oral narration mm -hmm. when they're six or seven. Um, and I also am a huge supporter of allowing uh 
drawings to be an accommodation for older students who perhaps are struggling with language in, in a class like a, you know, fourth grade class, mm -hmm. allowing that student to draw it as part of their accommodations. Um, and um, then, but when they draw it, you should sit down with them and say, okay, tell me about your drawing so that they can get used to right. learning how mm -hmm. to put into words um, the narrate, you know, how to narrate. So you're helping them overcome maybe an, a, a, an inability to narrate with words by letting them draw and then letting them tell you what is in the picture and even saying, what else could have been in the picture that, that was in the story that maybe you didn't draw? And it, making this a very natural a conversation um, and for teachers who have um, perhaps an aide in the classroom, this would be a great thing for the aides to know how to do in a classical school with students who need accommodations. Mm -hmm. yeah. the, the student could even dictate mm -hmm. their narration to the aide or the teacher. Correct. As yeah. well. That's true, that's true. The aide or the teacher could write it down or type it. I love that. Um, I'd like to get into a little bit about the moral imagination. Um, how does this come into play with teaching literature, Laura? Oh, that's one of my favorite topics. Yes, um, I think I would probably uh, refer to uh, Gorion's book, Tending the Heart of Virtue, which um, the subtitle is How Classic, Story, How Classic Stories Awaken a Child's Moral Imagination. I think I would recommend that to mm -hmm. any teacher or homeschool parent. Um, first, I think it's important that, again, he, he emphasizes that great stories avoid didacticism. So they are not written in order to teach children about honesty or about um, friendship or about a particular virtue. They are written because the author wants to tell a beautiful story. And it might have all of these virtues in it, but that's not the main point of the story. And um, when he describes the moral imagination, um, maybe I'll just read the quote and sure, talk about sure. that a little bit. Uh, his, one of his or main definition of moral imagination is the moral imagination is not a thing, not even so much a faculty, as the very process by which the self, the self makes metaphors out of images given by experience, and then employs these metaphors to find and suppose moral correspondences in experience. So that's kind of a complex quote that we can um, perhaps unpack a little bit. So first, I want to point out that it's a process. So results are not immediate. It's not like a child is going to read a story about lying and the negative consequences of lying and then they'll never lie again. Or about friendship and there will never be a fight on the playground ever again. That's not how it happens. It's a slow process and um, it doesn't, um, it happens gradually and um, it's a process by which the self makes metaphors out of images. So, um, I think we should always ask, what does this book teach kids? What good behavior will kids learn from this? But not necessarily to always point that out explicitly. Um, so we want to focus on what books, um, what, how this book will stir their imagination in a positive way and how, what effect does that have on their character? So an example of this is in The Secret Garden where um, the protagonist, Mary, she is, at the beginning of the book, a very disagreeable child due to neglect from her parents. And she is sent over to, to England and uh, to, to stay with an uncle. And on the train ride, the uncle's um, housekeeper 
tells her about how her uncle is a hunchback and how his wife died. And then Mary, who is at this point in the story, a very disagreeable child, uh, she becomes affected by that. And she recalls a French fairy tale that she had read about a hunchback who was in love with a, a, a girl. And so she recalls that story and it makes her feel sorry for her uncle because of that story. So that story had left an image on her mind. Mm -hmm. don't really see that in the way she interacts with people because she is at this point a very disagreeable child. But the story, she is she's connecting that story to a new experience that she has here. And um, it affects her reaction to her uncle. So I think that's a that's a really interesting point here. And I think it's also really important that no one sees this. This is all internal. She has that reaction. She feels compassion. She's a child who's never felt compassion before. But we, the reader, hear that for a brief moment, but no one else sees that. It, it doesn't it doesn't yet change her externally. And in fact, um, right after this, her uh, this housekeeper tells her that no one's going to want to see her. Her uncle is not going to want to have anything to do with her. So she kills off that little bit of moral imagination that was starting to blossom here mm -hmm. um, by saying the wrong thing, by telling her something negative about her uncle, which then um, the text actually even says then. Just as suddenly as she had begun to be rather sorry for Archibald Craven, she began to cease to be sorry and to think he was unpleasant enough to deserve all that had happened to him. So, wow, just in a very few short sentences, this adult has completely ruined it all. <laughs> that always makes me think about how often parents and teachers, myself included, perhaps do that. Maybe there is this little blossoming of moral imagination in a child that we don't know about. And by saying the wrong thing or by being negative, by saying something negative, we, we, hinder, we, we hinder or harm that process. Wow. Yeah, that's a really good example. Really mm -hmm. is. Um, so, and I know there's all kinds of other, there's the poetic imagination, there's sacramental imagination. Does anybody, do we want to get into any of that today or <laughs> anybody have any thoughts on the difference between moral, poetic and Sacramental, any, any thoughts? There's another podcast for you right there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm feeling like a break. <laughs> so I'm wondering if um, if we want to make this just episode one and then come back and episode two is going to be about books we read aloud to children. For our next episode, we took a deep dive into the art of narration we discussed narration as an art and addressed many questions that we have had from parents and teachers about the practical application of narration. In addition, Dr. Ite and Robin Johnston will share their wisdom and tips on what types of books are most suited for each stage of learning in a child's life from pre-K all the way through high school. And also we shared some of our favorite family read-alouds. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener-supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. 
As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, Well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it, as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.